Uh, this morning I have probably picked a subject that is difficult to teach. It's probably difficult to put into practice, but nevertheless it's in God's Word, so I think it's important that, that we go here. No, it's not predestination before you get that in your mind. <laughs> if you will, if you have your Bible, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 17. Those two verses only, three verses only, and we will be bouncing around here and there. So you have the means and you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, please. <clears throat> it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Y'all bow with me. Father God, um, I feel the weight of standing before your people right now, Lord. First and foremost, I just thank you for being our God. I thank you for being a good God. I thank you for giving us this word and this instruction on how to... Um, Grow in our Christ likeness, grow in our patience with one another, and Lord, grow in our obedience to you. Father, I pray right now that you would use this word to do your work. Lord, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to this. And Lord, we would see this as an opportunity uh, for improvement because we know we're not perfect. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy on our lives, Lord, and I thank you for loving us when we're not lovable most of the time. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> most of us adults in here have had kids or some interaction with kids. I believe I probably hold the record of the church with the most kids, so I can tell you tons of success and failure stories on the topic we're about to discuss. When you instruct a child to do something and they don't listen, it's like a ugh feeling in your stomach. You might even second guess on whether your instructions were even clear or not. But when you weigh it out in your mind <clears throat> and you get to the bottom of it, <clears throat> sorry, and the verdict drops, the child is guilty. That cute little precious spitting image of mom and dad is guilty and just disobeyed your instruction. Or they lied. Or they high-fived their brother in the face. Whatever the case might be. <laughs> and now love requires you to discipline them. I didn't give these verses to Nathan, so real quick if you want to write them down. Proverbs has much to say about it. It's, a, it's the book of wisdom. Proverbs 3.12, it says, For the Lord reproves 
Him who He loves as a Father, the Son in whom He delights. Chapter 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. In Proverbs 19, 18, Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. So failing to discipline our children is basically hating our children. It's losing hope for them. It's being a willing party to their death. But love disciplines. And it's our job as parents to discipline. It's funny in the Bible how you see so many times using the comparison between a child and a Christian. You see it time and time again throughout the New Testament. And actually in the chapter that we're in today, in chapter 18 of Matthew, if you read from the top, we're not going to read the whole thing, but if you would start scanning through that top there, you'll see that Jesus actually picks up a child and this is His, his instruction. Be like this child. He says in verse 3, you, can't, you have to enter like children. He says in verses 6 through 9 that we are protected like children. In verses 10 through 14, that we are cared for like children. And our verses today show that we are to be disciplined like children. Just as it is a parent's job to discipline the child, it's the job, our job as Christians to discipline in our church. This is as basic to being a Christian and in church and being a church member as it is to be a parent and discipline your child. This is not a popular practice today. You're not going to be the super cool church that everybody wants to come to because you practice church discipline. It's probably going to be the opposite. The, the idea of church discipline probably gives most of us that same ugh, feeling that we get when we discipline our kids. But this is God's church. It's not ours. And God says do this. Excuses for ignoring this command might sound something like this. Well, who am I to tell somebody else how to live their life? Why would I want to expose someone else's sin or force them out of the church? Or shouldn't we just love them right where they're at and let the Spirit do His work? It's worth mentioning that this is the very first command that Jesus gives the church. And by the way, the church ain't even born yet. And He doesn't give us any options outside of this command. He doesn't say if you feel like dealing with it or wait a couple of weeks and see if they repent and ask for forgiveness before you approach Him. You know, some of us probably think, well, that's the pastor's job. That's the leader's job to deal with that mess in the church. <clears throat> but if you know about it, you're involved. You know. And this is also a very general statement that Jesus gives us. He doesn't say pastors and leaders. He actually says, if your brother sins against you, <clears throat> your is you. 
If your brother sins against you, don't go tell the pastor, don't go tell the leader, you go tell your brother. That's what it says. Now some Bible translations leave out against you. The NASB is one of them. I think the NIV might leave it out. I can't remember. I didn't look at the whole list. But what we preach from in here, and I think what most people have, is the ESV. And so you could get detailed and say, well, hold on, it says if they sin against me, against you, against me. And I mean, I read the ESV, so that's how I'm going to take it. It's against me. But that argument won't hold up. You see, there's something called direct sin and there's something called indirect sin. Now, the direct sin is pretty self-explanatory. Somebody lies to you. Somebody abuses you. Somebody steals from you. You get the point. These are directly aimed at you. The goal here is to tell them their sin immediately and gain back your brother. The text says, go, not wait. You see, go is a present tense. So it means go now. So the big issue is not that your brother just sinned against you. The big issue is you just lost your brother. You go and you gain your brother back. And guess what? You can't gain back what you haven't lost. Your brother sinned against you. You just lost your brother. Go and gain your brother back. Now this process also gives us the opportunity to practice forgiveness. Another thing most people are not really strong at, at least not immediately. I found this quote. It says, You are never more like God than when you forgive. Think about that. You are never more like God than when you forgive. It's true. When someone sins against us, what's the natural reaction? We want payback. We want to gossip. We want to slander. We want to see them get exactly what they just gave us. Or we just hold a grudge. But what did Jesus ask for those who nailed Him to the cross and stood on the sidelines and laughed and mocked Him and spit at Him? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He hung on that cross after being beaten to the point that His bones were exposed. And He had the sin of the world placed on Him. And while we were all still enemies of God, He died for us to satisfy the payment of sin and to offer us that opportunity to be saved by His grace through faith and be forgiven of all our sins against the Holy God. That is amazing love. On the flip side of that, <clears throat> you are never less like God than when you don't forgive. When you don't forgive. And if we're honest, most of the time when someone comes against us, our first reaction is, forgiveness is the last thing on my mind. If that sin is not directly towards me, most of the time, it's probably a little bit of gossip in there. I can't believe so-and-so did this. I can't believe they did that. Did you hear? You know what I'm talking about. We're people. This is part of the battle 
that we must fight within ourselves to not repay evil for evil. Don't let someone else's sin cause you to sin. Peter asked a question in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 22. Nathan, you got that? It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, how many times do I really have to forgive him if he sins against me? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Like, whoa, that's a big difference. And then again in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Do so you get the point here? Every single time. He doesn't give a specific number. He keeps changing the number up because it's more than you can think. And ask yourself this, how many times are we forgiven of our sin? How many times? Does he count? Does he go, whoa, 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 that was seven times a day. Have you, has anybody ever sinned more than seven times in a day? Probably way more. He says it's forgiven. So who are we? If we have been forgiven, who are we not to forgive? So what about these indirect sins? We went over the direct sins, those aimed directly towards you. What about indirect sins? How are they aimed at me if they're not committed against me or directly towards me, and why should I care? That's sin against somebody else, right? Let them deal with it. But basically, any sin within the church is against God's people in the church because it stains us all. And I'm going to show you why. Let's just, let's just be hypothetical here. Let's say we have one of our members that's living a different lifestyle outside these walls. A lifestyle of sin. Just pick one. There's plenty. And lots of people know these, this person is a member of Wales Baptist Church. And they know his other lifestyle outside of Wales Baptist Church. What are his actions telling those people about Wales Baptist Church? And better yet, what are his actions telling those people about who Jesus Christ is? Probably going to sound something like, I don't think they care too much about sin over there or holiness or any of those things that they preach, right? We, the church, are the body of Christ and any tolerated sin in the body of Christ affects us all. So don't miss the fact that Jesus is talking about confronting professing Christians here. He's not talking about correcting the world. You're not going to correct the world. You're not going to straighten the world. That's Only God can do that. He's not talking about every person that slaps their rear end down in a seat on Sunday morning. He's talking about people who profess to be Christians. He's talking about those who we consider sisters and brothers in Christ. And I've been saying brothers a lot, but sisters too, they're not. They're just as capable of sinning against somebody as a brother. 
So I guess the question is, we know that people sin. We know that we are to confront sin, but how do I approach somebody? If I'm going to be obedient to Christ right now, what's this process look like? It's pretty basic the way he lays it out, but let, let's, let's take a look. We all know there's a right and a wrong way to do things. So if your desire to point out somebody's sin is for some kind of self-satisfaction, then you're probably in the wrong and you've probably sinned. Our motivation should always come from love for our brother or sister. Our love for God's church and, and God's desire to pursue holiness and, and purity for us, that's where it should all be aimed towards. Actually, our lives should be aimed toward this, towards this, but everything we do should have this goal at the end. We should have that strong desire to gain our brother back. And anything less than that, it's probably wrong. Jesus says in John chapter 13, Verses 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples and if you have love for one another. How do they know? It's by our love, right? Does the world love like Christians love? Why? Because... They don't have God in them. They don't have the Holy Spirit. We stand out because of our love for one another. So we're going to look at this process. Start with verse 15. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Why is that important? Because if he sinned against you and you go to him alone, this is not blasting it in front of everybody. This is, hey man, I love you. And I don't want you to see, see you go down this road. This is, this is what God's Word says, and this is what you've done. And when you do that out of love and humility and gentleness and all those marks of a true Christian, I guarantee you it's going to be a little bit different than you thought. I'm not going to tell you that 100% of the time it comes out good because I've been a part of times where it hasn't. It's turned south. So we understand that the right mindset and motivation is key. Now we need to understand what sins we correct. What sins do we correct? And the answer is all of them. That sounds like a load, right? All of them. Jesus doesn't say if your brother sins against you big, can anybody tell me the difference between good sin and bad sin? Is there such thing? It's all sin. So we address all of them. Before we go any further, I want to step back from the subject of discipline. I want to look at the opposite side of the coin, which is tolerance. What are the dangers of tolerating sin? I mean, it's the easy thing to do, right? Ignore it. Hope, I, hope, I hope God fixes it for them. Maybe they'll read a Bible verse that helps. Maybe the preacher will preach something that convicts them. 
Ignoring sin and practicing tolerance has actually been a strategy for growth in the church for some time. There is churches that surround our county that believe you let people in the door, you love them right where they are, and that's good enough. There is no push or nudge for holiness or show them their sin. You just love them right where they're at. They hold leadership roles. So what does that tell the world? I mean, just come on in. We act, we act just like y'all do. We're just one big happy club in here and you'll get self-motivation. You'll get whatever you need in here. We feel good. We don't call sin out. We don't call sin, sin. We call it all love. We just love one another. Where are you going to love them to? All the way to hell? If you don't call it out, who will? 1 Corinthians 5. Verses 1 through 17. Paul is dealing with a mess here. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated even among the pagans. Even the pagans don't put up with this. Now, that'd be hard to say of our time right now because anything goes. But at this point in time, even the pagans don't do this. And y'all are doing it in the church. Y'all are allowing it in the church. For a man has his father's wife. Yep, add that up. The guy and his mother. Mm-hmm. And you are arrogant. They still boast about being this great thing. Ought you not rather to mourn let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the Spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such thing. When you are assembled in the name of, Lord, of the Lord Jesus, and my Spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? so that His Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. They bragged. They bragged about it. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you, are really, as you really are leavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now get some of that. How did that happen? Do you think it just started that way? Probably not. But when you let one stain in, he just said it. A little leaven. You throw a little leaven in the lump, the whole thing. Because it wasn't dealt with. He told him, get it out. Get the leaven out. Or you're going to ruin the whole lump. In Revelations 2, we studied that the church of Thyatira, this was a few Wednesdays ago, we learned that there was a certain woman who was feeding them false teaching and leading many of the members to commit sexual immorality. The church tolerated the sin and it led them to a very dark place. Jesus tells them He knew their works 
So number one, that ought to scare you. You might fool people in here. You're not going to fool the one who sees everything. Jesus tells them He knew their works and to repent or they would be thrown into great tribulation. And He told the lady who refused to repent that she would be thrown on a sickbed. So He said He had already gave her enough opportunities to repent. She wouldn't do it. This lady is spending eternity in hell. That's what He says. That doesn't give you the warm fuzzies, does it? That makes us think, well, maybe if they hadn't tolerated the sin, okay. But we're in the exact same boat if we let it go. We can be exactly where they're at if we let it go. Remember, a little leaven leavens the whole lump and sin that is not dealt with eventually will stain the whole church. God cares about the holiness and the purity of His church that's the reason why we should. We, des- we should desire what God desires. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14-16. through 16, It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who, who called you is holy, you also be holy in, your, in all your conduct, everything you do, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We're not perfect now, but we should be pursuing holiness as we speak every day. Not just on Sunday, not just on Wednesday, every single day in everything, all of our conduct. So let's go back to Matthew 18. We see there's an order to this process. So if a brother sins against you, you go and you tell him his fault between you and him alone. The one-on-one face-to-face That's an opportunity for you to gain a brother and a relationship with a brother like you've never seen. When you approach somebody and they see that you care more about their soul than the fact that that, that he just sinned against you, that's love. That builds relationships like you've never seen. Because now I know that I trust you to care for my soul that when I mess up, You're going to let me know and you're going to help me back on this path. And the same thing, when I mess up, He lets me know. Y'all know the relationships I'm talking about. It's those that are the deepest, right? We all have, most of us have those people in here that we know that we can go to with whatever. When we sin, we can confess our sins to them and have them pray for us. They're there for us to the end. Galatians 6.1 it says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. There's one characteristic that we just talked about. You go to him in gentleness, not down his throat. You messed up. None of that. In gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You can sin too, right? This, you could be on the other side of the spectrum here. You could be the one getting talked to. You're not outside of that. None of us are. So you restore or you mend the relationship with a spirit of gentleness and you keep watch of your own intentions so that you don't sin as well. James chapter 5, verse 19 through 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back 
Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from, this, from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Could be that the person is just confessing to be a Christian and you approach them and find out they ain't even been saved. It's an opportunity to share the gospel with them. You could even be the person to lead them to that conversion. Don't miss the opportunity. Now, if the first step was always successful, there wouldn't be three more behind it, right? We tried the one-on-one talk and your brother ain't having it. He doesn't want to listen. And if anything, he's just mad now, right? And he wants nothing to do with restoration or forgiveness. What now? Verse 16. I done lost my place. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This process was actually put in place in the Old Testament. And if Nathan, if you put up, I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. The reason why was because those witnesses could confirm whether or not a sin or a crime had actually been committed. So you bring two or three with you. They didn't listen the first time. You bring two or three with you. And if you all agree that a sin has been uh, committed, then you beg this person to come back and repent. And guess what? If that always worked, there wouldn't be another step. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I'm not saying it ain't happened. And I'm not even saying that maybe things here, because I don't know about everything. I don't know about all the discipline that's went on here. I've never been in a church where I saw them bring somebody before the church. And maybe, praise God, it didn't have to get there. But how many times do you hear this happening in other churches? Think about it. How many times? Why? If He says to do it, why do you not see it happening? Because you know all these churches, somebody somewhere has made it to this step, right? It's crazy to think about. I'm saying, you know, it would be hard. It would be hard for me to bring somebody up or even be brought up here myself and be like, okay, tell them. Think about it. But what is the point of it? Because y'all are not out there to laugh at their sin or point at them. Y'all are out there to do the same exact thing. Y'all are charged the same way. When it makes it to the church, you beg them. You plead them. Please see your sin. Please repent. We don't want to lose you. Right? So you bring them before the whole church and it's the whole church's responsibility now to call them back. In the second part of 17, it says, if they still don't listen, you let them be as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, I don't know how much y'all know, 
by Gentiles and tax collectors, but a Gentile was basically a non-Jew. They were considered an outcast. They had no part in the covenant. They had no part in the worship. They had no part in the social life of Jews. A tax collector, on the other hand, was there by choice. He was an outcast by choice. He was born a Jew and considered a traitor because of his job preference, his way of life. So it was even worse. So Jesus is saying, treat them like an outcast. They have no part in worship, no part in social life, no part of the covenant, right? You don't kick them out of the church. That seems kind of mean, right? If we've been trying to win them back this whole time, we're just going to boot them out, right? Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. It says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, this letter was a letter of instruction, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. There's a purpose. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So even when we get to the process of sending them out of the church, you keep calling them back the whole time. Why do you think it, this, this comes right after the parable of the sheep? This is, this is kind of a line that this thing follows in. What happens in the parable of the sheep? One's gone. What does he do? Leaves all of them to go bring that one back, right? Same thing. You don't let them be a part of the, the service. You don't let them be a part of anything that's going on the members, but you keep calling them back. You don't give up. It's never, this process is never about checking off the list and saying what I did, what I had to do. You know, I got to the point where we had to boot him out of the church, but you know, finish my task, Lord. Check, we kicked him out. Now we move on. That's not what this means. You do not regard him as an enemy, but you warn him as a brother. This whole process is to maintain and grow in purity and holiness in the church, not to leave anybody behind. It is to care enough about somebody's soul that you won't just leave them in their sin condition, but labor with them and bearing, bearing their burdens through patience and long suffering. That's what it's about. Long-suffering is sometimes, I guess, misused. It doesn't mean you just long-suffer through their sin with them. That means you keep showing them their sin, but you just suffer through with them because you're trying to get them back here. That's the long-suffering part. It's not just saying, well, he's still sinning. He's going to sit here for a long time. But you're not suffering, right? You have to be calling them back. That's the whole, that's the whole purpose. So in closing, I've always wanted to say that. I'm only going to say it once. I, don't know, I can't remember how many times Kevin say, says it. I know Brother Anthony has about every other sentence is in closing. Let's say that you're on the fence about this command. You're like, oh, wow. I mean, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. Maybe you're not used to doing that. Jesus says do this, and that should be enough, but I want you to think about something. Let's imagine a church, if you will. And let's imagine this church. Everyone pretends 
all is well all of the time, right? And they never share their struggles or admit their faults between each other because that would make them look weak and in need of help, right? So they keep everything hidden and they pretend like everything is all right and we just smile and we come in and we sing and we leave, we shake hands and they just keep chugging along, never sharing in each other's burdens. No long suffering. Why should they have to? I mean, they have the perfect life, right? That church is over here. Then I want you to look at this church over here. And over here, we have a church that appears to be a hot mess because they're constantly confessing their sins to one another. They're confronting sin in the church because their members sin. And they have to pray for spiritual direction for their leaders because their leaders can't lead God's people without God's help. And they have to share in each other's burdens because they have plenty to go around. They won't let a single person wander from the fold because they love them too much to leave them behind. Which of these two bodies look like the true church to you? The pretender or the one who is in this mess but they won't let each other fall? That's who we need to strive to be the most. Dale, if you want to come on back up. I don't know how long I was. I hope I got my point across. I'd like to offer you an invitation now. Maybe you have sin in your life right now. Maybe you haven't addressed that sin. Or maybe somebody has sinned against you and you don't know how to address them. Or maybe you don't know Jesus at all as your Savior. This invitation right now is, is for that. So whatever you need, come now, humble yourself in the altar, and uh, lift up your prayers to God. If you want me to pray with you, I will.